brace yourself, because you're about to dive into another free first-hour episode of the Higher Side Chats, and we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Hallelujah and hello, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And we know quite well the power of empires and tyrants to distort and dismiss the history of anything that came before them or that they don't fully control. And few campaigns were more bloody and destructive than the spreading of Christianity which steamrolled and converted nearly every culture and spiritual tradition it encountered. Fully functional magic systems were replaced by a subservience to authority and slowly pushed to the back pages of history if they even made it in the books at all. But from our place in the timeline, we see a lot of value in the fractured yet sophisticated pieces that have stood the test of time and tell us that, quite often, something much deeper was going on with these traditions than the empires would have us believe. Yes, there are many, but the distorted and nearly lost history that we're going to be diving into today is that of the North, and the people who lived within the Arctic Ring, the Northern Europeans, the Vikings, and the Inuit, along with their mythologies and legends that speak of a mystic land beyond the North Wind, often referred to as Hyperborea. Like Atlantis, this cultural memory of the northern people might suggest an advanced civilization in our ancient past that spread its influence outward as the changing climate made their homeland too harsh to inhabit. Is there anything to suggest these legends of Hyperborea are true? Is there real magic in the runic system? Were the Vikings just the bloodthirsty barbarians they're depicted as? Well, these are just a couple of the compelling questions addressed in the latest work of today's guest, Christopher McIntosh, entitled Beyond the North Wind, The Fall and Rise of the Mystic North. If you're unfamiliar with Mr. McIntosh, he is a British-born writer and historian who holds a PhD in history from Oxford, a degree in German from London University, and a diploma in Russian from the United Language School, He's written several previous books that sound quite intriguing, including Rosicrucians, The History, Mythology, and Rituals of an Esoteric Order, Eliphas Levi and the French Occult Revival, and Gardens of the Gods, Myth, Magic, and Meaning. So let's get into it. All the way from Germany, the restorer of lost knowledge, the Hyperborea seeker, the professor of Nordic paganism, and the scholar of secret esoteric orders, Christopher, welcome to the higher side. Thank you very much, Greg. 
It's a pleasure to be on the show. Of course. This is a real pleasure. I'm psyched you're here. I really enjoyed Beyond the North Wind. It combines two major interests I have, which are digging into the magical traditions that were fractured by the hostile takeover of the Christian steamroll, as well as legends of mystical lands like Atlantis or Shangri-La or, of course, Hyperborea. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We've talked on this show about a lot of spiritual cultures before, Native American tribes, the Dogon of West Africa, ancient Egyptians, Eastern traditions, but I think there is a sort of assumption that, well, almost all history we learn about is white European history, so do we really need to do this? But I think it's pretty clear that that's an oversimplification, because if you look at Celts or Druids, or as you write about Nordic pagans, you can see that a lot has been left out of the story, wouldn't you say? Yes. <clears throat> when I was going to school back in the 1950s and 60s, the version of history we were taught was basically that civilization spread from the south to the north. So it, it all started somewhere around the region that is now Iraq, and then went via the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and further and further north until all of Europe was civilized. So um, the early inhabitants of northern Europe tended to be thought of as primitive barbarians. For, for example, uh, about the only thing I remember being taught as a child about the ancient Britons was that they dyed their skins blue with a substance called woad. Hmm. So I used to imagine these mysterious blue-skinned figures um, moving through the misty forests of ancient Britain, <laughs> occasionally grunting to each other in what passed for language. Uh, well, we, we now know that that's a very false picture, as you say. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do was to correct this this view. Mm -hmm. But I mean, having, having said that, um, there is now uh, a lot of interest in things northern when you think of the, the number of films, it seems like every other day a film comes out about Beowulf or the Vikings or the Nordic gods. Then there are all the computer games and the, um, there's a whole genre of pop music um, based on Nordic themes. So it's, uh, it's somehow um, the whole Nordic thing has somehow uh, come to life in, in the present age. Mm -hmm. Yes, I definitely notice a resurgence of sorts. And I know that you've looked at a lot of magical and esoteric history. And when I talk to people who practice in the occult, they often emphasize the importance of being connected to the system that you're using. They call it a tradition for a reason. And so I think, well, is it better to pay homage, in my case, to the indigenous magic of the area where I now live in Southern California? Or should I be looking at systems and cultures I'm more genetically linked to, like Northern Europe, and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on these threads of heritage and culture and geography even, and how they pertain to magical or spiritual traditions and their potency. Yes, well, I come from Northern Europe, so I feel a connection with the traditions of Northern Europe and the gods of Northern Europe. Now, of course, the ancient Nordic religion is, um, well, it's, it's to some extent a reconstruction mm -hmm. because, um, obviously it doesn't, it hasn't existed continu continuously as, as a living religion. 
But we have the the ancient uh, writings, the the Edda and the sagas. We have ancient remains. We have certain traditions, folklore, and so on. And uh, so from these things, one can, to some extent, reconstruct uh, reconstruct the religion. Take, for example, the symbol that is is used by the modern Nordic pagans, the the, Thor, the hammer of Thor. This uh, is a symbol that goes right back to prehistoric times. It's found in um, prehistoric cave paintings and, and so on. And uh, there's a story in the Edda about how the, the god Thor, his hammer was stolen by a giant. And um, Thor got it back by dressing as a woman and um, having the giant who'd stolen the hammer proposing to marry him. And then at the wedding, the wedding feast, the hammer was placed in the lap of Thor, disguised as a woman, hmm. which follows, follows an old custom of placing a hammer in the, the lap of the bride as a kind of fertility symbol. Now, the, the, the use of that, the use of the Thor's hammer has been revived. And, um, this custom of placing the hammer in the lap of the bride has, has also been revived in, in countries like Sweden. So that that's an example of how you have you 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 can um, revive an ancient tradition and and reconnect with it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your book Beyond the North Wind talks about the Nordic gods and their stories. Makes sense, you know, the tales yeah. in their mythologies, like the one you just mentioned, and they are interesting. But I think they're deeper than some people realize. Maybe even more real than people realize. And you write in the book about. Carl Jung's perspective on deities, where he said, deities are like a riverbed dug out over many centuries in the collective mind of a people. When the river dries up, the bed remains. And when the water begins to flow again, the river returns to its old course. And I like that analogy, but kind of elaborating on what you were just saying, how would you expand on that and help people understand the value of the gods, so to speak, or, you know, the realness, I guess, in a sense. Uh, well, uh, you, you would find many different views about what the gods actually are. I mean, even even within the Nordic pagan movement, some people believe that they actually exist in physical reality, like um, Sven von Bientinsen, who is the founder of the As a True Movement in um, Iceland, the, the, the Icelandic pagan movement. And um, he claimed that he had actually met Odin uh, while walking in the country one day. Mm. Um, so, that's, so, so that's one view. <laughs> um, other, others take the view that the gods are all different aspects of the one supreme god. Others take the Jungian view that they're parts of our collective unconscious Others would say that they're thought forms created through human beings worshipping them. Well, I tend to take the view that they're personifications of the great forces in the universe and in ourselves. I mean, for example, we all know that there's a force of Eros. Well, in the the classical mythology, um, this force is represented by Venus or Aphrodite. In the, um, the Nordic mythology, uh, it's symbolized by Freya. So, um, 
the gods, uh, to me, they're, they're personifications, symbols of forces that, that can be worked with. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yes, that and the kind of waveform idea are the things in my basket for sure. Just this idea that the more energy we give to something, the more people give it their energy, the more solid it can seem. Maybe in the sense that you can meet Odin out in the woods somewhere. Well, yes, yes. I mean, there is the... Um the Tibetan tradition of the, the tulpa, which is um, a human-like being who is created by uh, by, by uh, human thoughts, and uh, in uh, Alexandra David Neal's book about Tibet, she relates how she actually managed to create one of these tulpas. So uh, maybe maybe what that's what Sven Bjorn Bjornsson saw when he was out for a walk. Mm. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. I think there is a powerful energy behind where humans put their attention. Yes. And unfortunately, in the modern world, we're so just going about life unconsciously and just sort of, especially here in the States, living to be entertained. And our attention is constantly on just what's in front of the screen. And that's a real shame because we're putting a lot of energy into just making Disney a bigger corporation. Yes. And we're not using our power probably appropriately. That's right. So let's get into the juicy stuff, which to me is hyperborea, or I guess you pronounce it hyperborea. Yes, I, I would say hyperborea. Sure. What can you tell people about this concept of hyperborea in the north and how central it is to a lot of the northern people? Well, it, it all goes back to the ancient Greeks when um, an ancient Greek mariner called Pythias uh, set out from um, the Greek colony of Massalia, which is present-day Marseille, and sailed out into the Atlantic and up into the far north and came to a, a country which he describes as a country of fog and ice, which may well have been Iceland. Hmm. But at, at any rate, this, this, uh, the Greeks called Hyperborea, the land beyond Boreas, the north wind. And, uh, later it, uh, came to be also an alternative name came to be Thula or Tula or Ultima Tula, as the Romans called it. Mm -hmm. And this, this took on the character of um, a fabled land in the far north with um, a temperate climate where an advanced people lived until the polar region became covered by ice and the Hyperboreans disappeared. But many people think that they didn't in fact disappear, but dispersed to other parts of the world leaving their um, footprints um, in various ways. For example, the great megaliths like uh, Stonehenge in England and um, the Callanish stones in the Hebrides uh, could, be, could be examples of the footprints of the Hyperboreans because they, uh, I mean, a, 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 a monument like Stonehenge was an enormous feat it's, it's estimated that it would have, t would have taken the 
entire population of Britain at the time, about seven years, just to erect the central ring of stones. Mm-hmm. So um, these uh, these megaliths, um, they, they, the megaliths also um, incorporate advanced astronomical knowledge and mathematical knowledge. Uh, many of them incorporate the golden section, so on. So um, they've often been a great puzzle to archaeologists, and some archaeologists have tried to argue that they must have been built by a more advanced people from the south, which uh, is an example of what I was saying earlier about how the, um, the northern uh, northern civilization was sort of airbrushed out of our consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of kind of traces that the Hyperborean civilization might have left behind. Yes, very interesting. And I definitely am intrigued by the megalithic sites all around the planet. And it seems like some of the most impressive examples are like the Giza Plateau, the stones at Baalbek, Gobekli Tepe. And it just seems hard to reverse engineer a lineage of where these things would have come from or establish a timeline when we can't even really seem to date them. There definitely seems to be similarities around the world. Yes. So it suggests a common source, but how could we know to place that in the north? Well, there have been very interesting remains discovered, for example, in the far north of Russia, in in Russian Lapland, in the, the region of the White Sea and the Barents Sea. Back in the 1920s, there was a Russian archaeologist, um, Alexander Bachenko, who went there. And um, he was actually looking for Hyperborea because he thought that um, the, the Hyperboreans were an example of a, a, an earlier civilization with very advanced knowledge and that maybe one could uh, somehow reconstruct this knowledge. So um, he went up there in search of Hyperborea and he found some extraordinary things like pyramids, um, paved, an ancient paved road, labyrinths, um, and other such remains. And he was, he was convinced that the, the local indigenous people, the Sami, the Sami shamans were in fact the, uh, ancestor or the, or the, the, the um, present day descendants of the Hyperboreans. Hmm. And, uh, more, more recently, um, there have been a number of other expeditions uh, to the same area, which again have found all kinds of extraordinary things like a huge throne, twice human height, covered, uh, carved out of a, a, a single block. So it's difficult, difficult to account for these things, um, unless one presupposes some kind of ancient uh, prehistoric civilization there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm definitely intrigued by the idea of a temperate land in the north, and I've read various accounts of Arctic explorers that suggest some weird things, being out on the deck and not needing their coat, watching certain birds migrate north and wondering where they're going. Yes warm air coming from somewhere uh, it's confusing i don't know what kind of stock to put in those stories especially in the modern world i mean it's hard for some people to entertain that there are lands that are unfound but what do you make of those stories they're definitely interesting 
Well, I, I think um, at the present time, the Arctic region is simply too cold to um, sustain such a, a civilization, but it hasn't always been that cold. I mean, for example, on Spitsbergen, the uh, Spitz, uh, Spitsbergen uh, archipelago, which is only about 700 miles from the North Pole, um, they found fossilized remains of palm trees. Mm. So uh, clearly, Spitsbergen uh, once had uh, a, a, a quite a warm climate. Right. There could have been a number of reasons for this. It could have been that at, at one time the Earth's axis was vertical, which would have, would have meant that the temperate zone extended much further north than it does now. Or it could have been due to a shifting of the Earth's crust. And there, and there are a number of other geophysical reasons why the north might at one time have been uh, habitable. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I love that fact that they found fossilized palm trees there. And then your mind starts trying to work back the ways in which that would be possible. I'm a fan of the earth crust displacement idea, but then it kind of throws out, you know, the direction of north that then becomes like east and west. It just seems weird to conceptualize. <laughs> That's true. So if the idea is that this civilization was destroyed and these advanced people went out and seeded their knowledge, what else could we see today that might be pieces of it? I think at, along the lines of megalithic sites, maybe even the megalithic yard, this unit of measurement that used to be quite important. Yeah, yes, exactly. Well, the, 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 the very existence of the megalithic yard presupposes a quite advanced civilization because um, there would have had to, there would have to have been a standard measurement. They would have had to have you know, a, a kind of um, what would you call it a kind of template for this megalithic yard, which was shared uh, throughout a very very wide area. Um, yeah, so that's a possible piece of evidence. Another possible piece of evidence is linguistic. The uh, Indo-European languages are extremely complex with um, all kinds of um, cases and um, different verb forms and, and so on. And it's very difficult to think that these languages simply evolved. I mean, the, the, the grammar is, is simply too complex. One has the impression that they were created at, at some point. They were deliberately designed. And um, there is one theory that um, they came from Hyperborea at a time when Hyperborea was cut off by the ice. And um, this enabled the people of that, that region to free from outside influences to create a complex language o- over a period of um, maybe a couple of thousand years or so. So that's um, that's another possible piece of evidence. And then we have the evidence of the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, where there is mention of uh, an ancient home in the north where there was a dawn of 60 days. Now, um, the polar year basically consists of a day and a night of four months each, with a dawn and twilight of two months at each end. So this passage seems to refer to the North Polar region. So there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of hints like that. I mean, there's, 
there's um, very little that one, one can call direct evidence of hyperborrelia, but there's a lot of indirect evidence of this kind. Mm -hmm. Another thing that is interesting is that apparently if you look at a lot of the cultures around the ring of the far north, you see a lot of shamanism, which is right up my alley. And uh, yes. this is something that you think might also have been carried on from the Hyperboreans. Is that right? Yeah, yes, ab absolutely. Uh, as you say, um, all of those indigenous peoples around the Arctic Circle, the, the Inuit, the, the various um, Mongol peoples of northern Russia, the Sami of northern Scandinavia, they're, they're all shamanic cultures. And in fact, the Nordic mythology is pervaded by shamanism. Uh, when you think of how Odin is said to have received the secret of the runes by hanging on the world tree, the Yggdrasil, for, for nine days and nights, which is a typical shamanic ordeal. And um, he has other shamanic features. He has um, totem animals. He has uh, two wolves and two ravens. And he has a horse with, with eight legs. And uh, there are many um, references in the sagas to shamanic practices. So uh, I think uh, shamanism was the original religion of the Nordic peoples, um, and it somehow um, become dormant. Hmm. But I think, it, in, in a way, it is the in a way it is the um, sort of secret religion of the North. Yeah, I really like those ideas. I've been intrigued by the work of. Uh I think it's John Michael Allegro, Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, the idea that oh, yes. a lot of the yes. Christmas motifs are actually derived from the Amanita muscaria mushroom, which is white and red, which are the colors of Santa Claus, his mystical guy, yeah. and the reindeers are all flying, and it's like really allusions to psychedelics or entheogen use. Yes, well, um, the, the use of psychedelics is very important in shamanism, and um it's found very widely uh, among uh, those indigenous peoples. I mean, for example, in Finland, uh, there's a practice of uh, reindeers uh, often eat these amanita mushrooms. And there's a practice of drinking the urine of the reindeer because you then get the, um, the narcotic effect without the poisons. It has, has a deep you get it in a detoxified form, and also in also in a very intense form. Mm. So um, that's that's an example of uh, yeah the use the use of psychedelics filtered and concentrated. Yes, yes. yes. At what a cost! Mm. <laughs> and you mentioned Thule, which is a term we hear about in German occultism. Yes. Are these references to the same mystic land, you think? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the Germans uh, had their own sort of interpretation of it. They sort of idealized it as a kind of um, northern, uh, as a kind of Aryan paradise. Yeah. I can't, can't say very much much more about about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we often find similar terms for different ideas. I mean, I've always considered Hyperborea to be this mystic mountain of the gods, but I was surprised by the diversity of descriptions and even how similar some descriptions are to Atlantis in that 
It was an advanced civilization that's now underwater. That is described at times. We get this idea of Atlantis from Plato. And curiously, one of your contentions seems to be that this Hyperborean culture might have been an influencer of the Greeks. Maybe this is how this cultural memory made it to them. Uh, well, um, I think I think you're, you're referring to the theory that uh, Homer's poems, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, actually describe a place that w was in the north and not um, in the Mediterranean. Right. Uh, this is a, it's a very interesting theory. There's um, an Italian researcher, um, Felice Vinci, who's written a very interesting book on this subject. And um, he comes up with some very interesting evidence. Um, I mean, when when, Hilmer, when uh, Homer describes the Peloponnese, for example, he describes it as um, a flat, um, a flat island. When in fact we know it was it's a mountainous peninsula, and um, he uh, identifies place names in Homer um, that don't correspond to the Mediterranean, but that co correspond very closely to places on the Baltic. So that is an interesting theory. It is. And there were also some interesting threads about Troy, and we have this idea of the Trojan horse, but to say a wooden horse at a time when people rode horses is almost to say a vehicle like a boat. Yes, yes. And uh, to think they could have been trying to describe a boat is just kind of mind-blowing considering what, at least what Hollywood has put in my head. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, it could well have been a boat, especially when you uh, think that um, in the Icelandic poetry, uh, the, the boat is often referred to as the, the horse of the sea. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yes, yes. More sense than wheeling in a horse model and hiding inside of it. I mean, you'd think soldiers would be on a giant boat, a warship. I mean, that makes more sense. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, of course, there is, there is a theory that um, Troy, in fact, was not a real place. But um, the whole story of Troy was, in fact, symbolic. Um, so um, Helen of Troy is, in fact, the spring goddess who is captured by the god of winter. And so that the whole story of the freeing of Helen is, is symbolic of the coming of spring, which which actually would, would make quite a lot of sense. And it would, would explain why there are many places throughout Europe uh, with the name Troy. Ah. Yeah. These places were, 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 the name Troy came from the legend rather than from, from a particular place. <laughs> and um, the idea of... of the labyrinth was a place where the, the spring goddess was kept um, imprisoned and then freed. Yeah, it does make sense. And it's, it's a funny thing because the further you go back, the harder it is for me to unravel these kind of things. And I would think that fiction and the imagination would exist just as long as anything would. And so when we're looking at these ancient writings and they're already quite flowery and poetic in the way they record things but we have this tendency i guess to just think the older something is the more literal it is and yes, yes. Know, that's probably not true oh no not at all 
usually the more nuanced and layered it is actually yes yes absolutely yes yes when you think of the um the the, the viking poetry for example um which is um, full of extremely complex metaphors called kennings where for example I, uh, uh, like the one i mentioned where they talk about uh, a ship as being the horse of the sea um or there's a saw uh, um this sunlight is the sword of the gods uh, and so on so um this poetic tradition is so strong or was so strong among the vikings that um in the middle of a battle for example say a sea battle someone would stand up in the middle of a boat and declaim a poem compose a poem on the spur of the moment with all the correct meter and, and, and correct alliteration and, and the correct kennings and so on well that's quite a quite a feat to be able to do that <laughs> when you know that you might be dead the next minute right Life uh, was cheap in the old in the old days, it seems. Well, uh, they just they just had a different attitude to life and death. Mm-hmm. They were much more comfortable with the notion of death, I guess. I mean, the environment's harsher; you kind of have to be. But today, we just—it's like such a scary, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing that no one wants to deal with. Yes, that's right. Yes, hmm. and. I also wanted to get into some of these rites and rituals of the Nordic pagans, or particularly the runes. You write in the book that they have become a popular means of divination, a method of character analysis, a system of meditation, and even the basis of a kind of physical yoga. And I'm interested in all of that. What can you tell us about the history and the use of the runes? Well, the runes are, are a fascinating subject. They appeared around the first century AD and spread very rapidly throughout Northern Europe. No, nobody quite knows where they came from or, or what they were based on. Some people think they were based on the, partly on the Phoenician alphabet, partly on the Roman alphabet, partly on um, prehistoric uh, cave uh, markings. At any rate, um, they spread very rapidly and in a remarkably uniform uh, form. There are basically two main uh, runic alphabets, or futharks, as they're called. There's an older futhark and a younger one. The older one consists of 24 letters. The younger one consists of 16 letters. And um, as you say, they're not only an alphabet, but used for divination and magic. And... Uh, the sagas are full of descriptions of the, of mag- the magical use of the runes. Now, uh, there's, there's a lot more to the runes than meets the eye. A Norwegian friend of mine, Halvard Hartklau, has um, done a very deep mathematical analysis of the runes because the, the, the runes are based. Uh, uh, the runes are composed of three types of stroke vertical left-leaning and right-leaning. And uh, some some of them have um, two strokes, some three, some four, uh, some five. So what, what he did was he created complex uh, matrices counting the number of strokes in each case of the groups of runes. It's, it's difficult to explain his analysis because it was very complicated. But 
uh, one conclusion he came to was that there's a, a correspondence between the runes and the trigrams of the Chinese Bagua system, uh, which, which is similar to the I Ching, except it has trigrams instead of hexagrams. Um, so that's fascinating because, again, it suggests that there might be a common origin. There's a common link between the uh, the Bagua and the the runes. So again, this could be another piece of evidence mm-hmm. that there was some precursor civilization that um, from which both of these things came. Yes, I am really intrigued by that idea and the depth of these systems. Sometimes, like a thing, these these alphabets like the runic alphabet or even something like john d's anakian yes they have this similar shape of these symbols that correspond to numbers and a grid type of layout usually in a circle and it's just really fascinating and it almost even seems adjacent to the things you see in some crop circles it just makes me think about like this hypothesis of an ancient advanced civilization that migrated out and spread their shamanic teachings and esoteric knowledge around the globe in a physical sense. I mean, it is intriguing. We do have examples like the pyramid structure, which is all over the globe. But when we ask the tribes of the Amazon how they discovered ayahuasca, they say the spirits told them. When we ask the Dogon how they knew about Sirius A and B, they say the spirits told them. Yes. Sometimes I think maybe these traditions didn't spread by man literally traveling around the globe, but by spirits seeding these same things themselves to different pockets of people. Is that something you entertain? Yes, or or, or perhaps by some sort of process of morphic resonance. Yeah. Like the, uh, the monkeys on one side of the world who learn how to open a coconut and monkeys on the other side start doing the same thing. Yeah, that's an absolutely interesting phenomenon. Just this idea that once something is in the collective unconscious, all humans can tap into it. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, I think that helps to explain why we don't maybe have as much physical evidence for the travel as we would want. Yet you can see the the footprints around and. I think maybe when people have a more esoteric context, they can maybe better understand how these things could emerge without the physical component. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because the legend of Hyperboreans is usually associated with tall whites. And you can also find that term in ufology, that people have these encounters with tall white beans and yes. who knows if there's a connection but there's definitely a similar shape yes well of, of course there's um uh, there's a legend among the uh, the aztecs or the um the aztecs or the maya uh, i forget which in in latin america who um, had this legend that at one time they were visited by gods who were tall fair-haired, blue-eyed men. So that, that, that could possibly be another example. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to return to the runes a little bit, 
and divination, I'm always interested in how these things can work. I've seen enough examples that I'm convinced about their validity, but how do you explain the mechanisms behind their accuracy? Uh, well, um, my, my own view is that the deeper levels of the human mind, human consciousness, are connected to the entire universe. But in order to access that knowledge, we have to have some intermediate tool. Uh, now, some people would do that through astrology, some would do it by reading tea leaves, some would do it through palmistry, and um, the runes uh, are another example, another example of this. Uh, the runes are they're kind of universal, they're universal symbols which represent universal uh, qualities and forces and, uh, and modalities. So uh, what, what you're doing when you carry out a runic divination, basically you're using the runes to tap into those deeper levels of your, uh, of your mind. Uh, that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that there's something weird about certain archetypes having like this eternal imprint in the human mind somewhere. And yes. when you hear these stories about the runic alphabet maybe being derived through shamanic means or even, like I mentioned, John Dee's system, which was also derived by contact, it almost makes me feel as if the spirits are like, hey, look, we can help you, but we have to have a language we can understand. So here's a set of symbols. These symbols correspond to these archetypes. And then the more you play with these things, the more we can communicate through them. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> it's a far out idea, but I mean, we're, we're seeing several examples that could speak to that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Awesome. Well, hey, I really enjoyed the book. You are clearly very passionate for the North, and I'm glad we got to learn a little bit more about it. Before I cut you loose, let the people know maybe about some of your other books or your website or anything else you might be working on in the future. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, my my website is, I just have to think a minute. Um, I believe it's Osgard. Yes, it's um, www.osgard.net, N-E-T, www.osgard, that's O-Z-G-A-R-D. Um, that's my website, and there you'll find a list of my books and a description of them. As I say, I've, um, well, I've, I've written um, quite a number of books. Um, including, as I said, the occult novel, Return of the Tetrad, and uh, three volumes of short stories dealing with esoteric and pagan themes. So uh, I think uh, I think the website will give people most of the information they need. Very cool. And I was curious why you went with that spelling of Osgard. Is that maybe its original spelling? Uh, well, um one of my favorite books and films is The Wizard of Oz. Ah. 
so it refers to Oz as in the Wizard of Oz. So it's, it's a combination of Oz as in the Wizard of Oz and God as in Asgard. In fact, one of my stories in uh, a collection of stories I wrote called the the Sorceress of Agartha um, deals with the theme of the Wizard of Oz and a, a sort of uh, uh, puts forward a sort of unusual angle on on the story. <laughs> Very cool, awesome. Well, Christopher, it's been a blast. The search for the Hyperboreans continues, I guess. Yes. Thanks again. It was a great time. Do take care out there. And pl pleasure talking to you, Greg. A beacon of light from the North, people. How we doing out there? Mr. McIntosh, dropping knowledge on the Mystic North. This is one where I took a bit of a chance because I saw his book. I was getting into it. I liked what it was about. But I'd never heard previous interviews with Chris. Never stopped me before. And you just never know how that's going to go. And I think he's a great writer and very knowledgeable about these subjects that he's got a passion for, but maybe isn't as used to speaking about these things at the sort of great length we typically do around here. But that's all right. As much as we'd like to talk about mystic lands and hidden worlds, Hyperborea isn't one that we've really zoomed in on all that thoroughly. So I think anyone could understand what I was going for today between. Hyperborea, and of course, runic magic, another topic that hasn't gotten a lot of time in the spotlight either. And I actually held on to this one for a little while, almost too long, but it did come in a little short, especially after editing because I tried to shorten up some of the longer pauses and it was going to add up over two hours. But I wanted to sort of sandwich it between two longer shows. I did learn some things, though. I hope you did, too. A big takeaway for me was closer to the beginning with the expedition of Alexander Barchenko, who thought he knew where Hyperborea would be, started digging, and found an ancient road and pyramids. That's pretty damn interesting. I would love to know more about why he thought he'd find something there. Practical reasons, or maybe something more of the close encounters beamed the brain sort of inspiration. But I do love that phrase, here be dragons, though. <laughs> I think that part's only in the Plus show, but the first time I heard that was on the Fargo TV show, one of the best shows going right now, if you ask me. But they craft these amazing villains, and the whole Fargo theme is that people in a quaint, quiet town are not equipped to deal with real, cutthroat criminals' true evil. That was the theme of the movie, and it's carried through each completely unique season of the show. But the first season, the villain is Billy Bob Thornton, and he gets pulled over by a naive police officer who wants his license and registration. And Billy Bob has this cold-as-ice monologue about, well, let me just play it. License and registration, please. We could do it that way. You ask me for my papers, I tell you it's not my car, that I borrowed it. See where things go from there? You could do that. Or you could go get in your car and drive away. Now why would I do that? Because some roads you shouldn't go down. Because maps used to say there'd be dragons here. Now they don't. 
but that don't mean the dragons aren't there. Step out of the car, please, sir. How old's your kid? He said step out of the car. Yes. Come in. Over. Let me tell you what's gonna happen. Officer Grimley. I'm going to roll my window up, and then I'm gonna drive away. And you're gonna go home to your daughter. And every few years, you're gonna look at her face and know that you're alive because you chose not to go down a certain road on a certain night. That you chose to walk into the light instead of into the darkness. Do you understand me? <laughs> great show, great scene, solid phrase. I'd love to throw in little clips once in a while in these wrap-ups. But in terms of this subject matter, I guess one could consider it a cop-out to not want to talk about the dark roads of Northern philosophy. It's also fair to say that there are extremists and negative interpretations of nearly everything. And Christopher seems like a genuine and kind person who isn't trying to lead anyone astray. He just has a curiosity and love for his own culture even if it has had some uncomfortable manifestations in our history. Hey, I certainly don't want to vouch for or have to explain away a lot of elements of my wholesome family conspiracy culture I love so much, so to each their own. But I'm also very into the archetype and shamanic themes that came up, and I absolutely had a great time with his book. Because the show came in maybe 20 minutes short, I just kind of split the difference with the free and plus versions. But in the second half today, we added some logs to the higher side fire and we talked about legends of fabled lands in Russia, why the history of the North is so often twisted and omitted from our general history, how Icelanders kept their esoteric beliefs in the face of the Christian steamroll, egregores, Icelandic fairies, Christopher's thoughts on the Bach saga, inner earth lore, Ferdinand Ossendowski, astrology, filtering energy from the pole star to the pineal gland, and Christopher's Rosicrucian book and research. Good times. In fact, Chris kind of got on a roll there when we were talking about astrology, citing evidence that could support the idea that energies can filter from the stars right on through our bodies or to the pineal gland in the case of the North Star. Kind of jives with what Eric Dollard was saying about trying to get a good weld under certain astrological conditions. I think we kind of compartmentalize astrology to how does it affect me? How does it affect people? And I think this star and planet energy affects a lot of stuff, probably things that we don't even notice most times. And sometimes it is just funny how one idea will sound too far out for a person, and then another idea that I think is even wilder on the scale of ideas seems like an easier pill to swallow. I guess I'm just the kind of guy that's swallowing all kinds of pills with far less discretion, but hey, some people just call that a good weekend. It's also interesting that Chris's friend Hilmar Orn Hilmarsson who is heading this Icelandic paganism revival and also wrote the foreword to the book, says he met Odin in the woods one day. And that seems like an intense experience for sure. 
but also the argument that the Trojan horse was a ship rather than a strange wooden horse model that soldiers hid inside of, that makes more sense too. So I don't know. Sorry it's a bit short. I exhausted my questions earlier than expected, even though I like to come to these things quite prepared. Thought it was pretty interesting. I like trying to re-examine pockets of history and culture with a magical context folded back in. Obviously, that's a big blind spot left out of our education in most cases. So I'm still figuring out how to do those kind of shows best, I think. But an attempt was made. (laughs) But big thanks again to Christopher McIntosh for his time and his work. He certainly knows a lot about a lot and has a scholarly approach to these subjects, and there's certainly a need for more of that in the world. But that's going to be it for me today. Joint session tonight, 7 p.m. It is the 25th of the month. I think YouTube is going to screw us again, so please think about showing up. You can click that link on the front page of thehiresidechats.com. It'll take you right there. I got one more show for the month coming at you. A month where we've had Eileen Day McCusick, David Icke, Eric Dollard, and now Chris McIntosh with Beyond the North Wind. And the next show I know you're going to enjoy as well. So stay awake, be ready. You do not know the hour when the higher side is coming. And I'll see you then. Your move, history suppressors, mystery depressors, and secret keepers of the mystic north. Your bucket. Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'd be invited Buy a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 